Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Hey, Stuart, Sean, great to be in conversation with you guys again. Hey, guys. Good to catch up. Well, let's uh, kick off the show as we do every week by doing something that our listeners maybe didn't want to do, but we can do for you, which is uh, dive deep into the conservative leadership race uh, and share with you, uh, I guess, some thoughts on key developments in this campaign. Did we learn anything new this week about these candidates? Stuart, let me come to you first. Each Friday, you write for The Hub, our kind of roundup on the race. Uh, big debate, French language debate this week that was the focus of your story, available right now at www.thehub.ca. Stuart, what was, uh, what was the lesson, uh, anything important out of the French debate that you think could affect this campaign? Yeah, the most obvious thing was something we already knew, which was that three of those candidates just cannot speak a lick of French. Um, it was Pierre Polyev, Jean Charest, and Patrick Brown basically having their own little debate there. And the other three were sort of reading note cards. Um, so that I think that was expected. Leslie Lewis, who was also in the French debate last time, but seems to have not improved her French skills at all since then. Um, you know, it takes some guts to get on that stage when you can't speak it at all. Um, so I think probably the biggest thing uh, in the debate was that because of the dynamics there, it was a two-on-one debate. It was Patrick Brown and Jean Charest versus Pierre Polyev. Polyev even called it out during the debate and called them a little coalition against him. And, you know, there's been all these rumors of the, the, the campaigns getting together to sort of, you know, have a non-aggression treaty and mostly go after Polyev. Um, it was interesting. I think probably the most um, interesting thing to come out of the debate was that Polyev actually went after Brown a lot and almost devoted as much time to him as he did to Jean Charest. So because we have no clue what's going on with Patrick Brown um, in terms of his memberships, his support, his chances here, you know, you can maybe get a sense that Polyev is at least um, hedging against the idea that Brown might be stronger than we all suspected. Let me come to you now, Sean, and uh, go, go bigger picture. You know, I often think, how do you reduce these types of evenings to, you know, one or two words and maybe focusing on the front runners? I saw one kind of summation, which I thought was smart, which was the Sheree argument, national unity, the Pierre Polyev argument, freedom. Um, it's an interesting way to look at it. In a sense, one campaign, the Sheree campaign, obviously playing to his strengths as uh, former premier First Minister of Quebec. Uh, but I wonder, Sean, your thoughts about national unity as a creed occur in this moment. It somehow seems out of touch. I feel that people are concerned about unity, but it's more about polarization. It's more about the fracturing of the body politic. It's less about 
Quebec in Canada. Uh, am I wrong about that? No, I think that's right. Um, you know, and the fact that uh, that there was a critical mass of conservative voters in the province of Alberta that were so hot about Jason Kenney's leadership that they effectively sacked him suggests that the kind of energy within conservative politics these days isn't seeking the candidate who's offering a message of kumbaya. Um, it, they're seeking the, the message of a candidate who's got a, a message of taking the fight um, to um, you know, the so-called uh, elite. If I can just make a point though about uh, the, the so-called little coalition, you know, it's worth remembering that um, in Sharon Shray's uh, PC leadership race, Patrick Brown was a, a major youth organizer. And it seems to me uh, what's interesting about this uh, coalition, guys, is that they both see the other as the key to getting them over the line, right? Like there's very little likelihood that either of them is going to have 50% plus one on the first ballot and their path to victory involves the other's supporters coming to them on subsequent ballots. I think there's been a presumption that it would be Brown supporters coming to Sheree on subsequent ballots to get him over the line. And the fact is, Stewart says that Polyev focused much of his fire on Brown suggests that the opposite is, is more likely that Jean Charest's candidacy in this race may ultimately be the key to Patrick Brown winning the leadership, uh, not the other way around. Mm. Stuart, do we have any idea of what's you know happening under the hood in the Brown campaign? Because I guess you could you could assume that memberships are being sold to these various ethnocultural communities that he had a strong network with, especially the South Asian community here in Ontario. But let's remind the listeners that, you know, the rules, this isn't the NDP. It's not one member, one vote. It's a, it's a system that requires strength across the country. There are points awarded on a, on a riding by riding basis. You know, so to what extent does the Brown strategy actually work when those ethnocultural communities we know are concentrated geographically in a few specific regions of the country. Yeah, this, so that is the fundamental hurdle for Brown. Um, and I think that's, you know, when you look at how he has done this before, I mean, he went into Brampton where he has really no connections and just won the mayorship there. Um, so you can see that it works in specific scenarios, but you're right. This is something that if you're geographically concentrated, it just doesn't work. And that's why actually the, the battle in Quebec has always been really interesting in these leadership races, because you can sometimes get out there and, you know, there's very little conservative activity out there, but you can make some hay in Quebec because it's a big province with lots of people and there's ridings that people aren't really paying attention to. So that's kind of the the Jean Charest angle here. Um, and actually, you know, um, I've always been super curious about the Pierre Polyev uh, chances in Quebec because something that I think was sort of underreported at the time was the amount of fleur-de-lis we saw at the trucker convoy protest um, and also at the border crossing um, in Ontario. Um, this was, you know, th there was a lot going on in Quebec on the mandates and that was creating a lot of ire. So um, I don't think it's going to be this mass movement in Quebec, but it could be enough in a leadership mm -hmm. race for Polyev. So that it really is the challenge for Brown is I, I really don't know what his organization is right like across the country where you're getting into 
you could imagine the strategy working in Vancouver, for example, um, but it would take someone who has those connections there um, to actually do that. So um, I, I think we'll probably find out in about a week when the, or we'll start to find out in about a week when the deadline closes for memberships. And then, you know, they start doing that kind of, um, you know, the steady work of getting through all the ballots, the memberships and making sure they're all okay. And then we'll have the actual voting. So it's going to be a slow process, but we will slowly find out. Mm -hmm. Can I put something to you guys? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, we've, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about Sheree and Paulia, but it's, it's worth talking a bit about Brown and I'd be interested in your thoughts. I, I uh, if listeners haven't uh, checked it out yet, we had a podcast earlier this week, David Mulrooney, the former Canadian ambassador to China. And on that podcast, we talked about diaspora politics in Canada and the extent to which a uh, we've effectively turned our foreign policy into a platform for Canadian politicians to play domestic politics with different uh, ethno-cultural communities within the country. You know, that's been part of our politics for a long time, but it seems to me in this leadership race, Brown is taking that to the next level. I mean, let's just put it bluntly. He is, in effect, trying to replace the pre-existing conservative membership with a new membership uh, comprised of members of these various communities based on promises that he's made to them in private, um, uh, you know, without the scrutiny of the media or without consulting the existing members. We could have, in theory, a world come uh, January 4th where the membership has essentially doubled uh, or more through Brown's efforts alone, um, and that could fundamentally change the character, um, policy-wise, I mean, of uh, the party on key issues around Israel or Canada's relationship vis-a-vis -vis China or, you know, our position in the Indo-Pacific uh, region, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know what, guys, I have a, a feeling of unease about this mm -hmm. kind of politics that Brown's practicing. And I've been surprised that many in the media and, uh, and other commentators haven't really um, given it the attention uh, it deserves. Well, I really recommend people check out, uh, Sean, your interview with David Mulroney. It's just, uh, it is a scathing kind of indictment of the state of Canadian foreign policy. In fact, he's saying there is no foreign policy. Um, you know, there, there was an, always an old kind of chestnut from, you know, U.S. foreign policy circles that, you know, all foreign policy is domestic policy. And that in some ways, that's nothing new. Um, but I think what is different this time, and you put your finger on something, Sean, is that is just how overt this strategy is. And I would argue how in some ways you would think it would be out of sync with you know, a center-right political movement that likes to speak in a language of national interests as opposed to values. So one could conceivably see a, a progressive left party um, absolutely thinking about Canadian foreign policy as a mosaic of values emanating from different communities and balancing those different kind of rights claims against each other. I would argue that a more conservative foreign policy, one, I think that Canada historically has had some of its, reaped some of its greatest benefits. Uh, events like the creation of NATO, which arguably was largely a, a Canadian project. All those, those key kind of milestones in our emergence from colony to nation state came about through a shrewd practice of understanding interests and pursuing them. And we know the story, the last really generation, values have now become embedded in our foreign policy dialogue. It often leads to very squishy. And as David Mulroney points out, a bizarre scenario where right now Canadian foreign policy 
is centered around the values of, and again, these are important issues, but are they the sine qua non of Canadian interests? Right now, under the Trudeau government, he has, in a sense, a feminist foreign policy, an overtly uh, feminist lens to look through the different policies, platforms, and actions that the Canadian government can take on the, on the world stage through, uh, the, through women's issues, um, from reproductive rights to political participation to gender representation. Great, it's an important issue. I don't deny that, but is it the totality of, of Canada's interests in a fast-changing geopolitical uh, environment? Stuart, let me come back to you before we go to our next section. Just talk a little bit about Quebec, because Bill, uh, Bill C-21 came up. Um, this is the secularism law that was passed in 2019, which you know bans many Quebec government employees from wearing religious symbols. And, and the reality is that it, it's... it's it, it's a pretty ugly uh, law. It, it seems to target primarily um, people of the Muslim faith who often have the most visual representations of their religiosity. And, you know, there's all kinds of, I think, very good arguments that in the 21st century and 2022, one would think that a more pluralistic, forward-looking society would not be discriminating people against people in such overt ways. How did the different campaigns deal with this? Because it really, to me, has been an interesting and ongoing kind of thorn in the side of conservative uh, conscience that I think conservatives know that this is, this is bad stuff. This is a kind of version of the Jim Crow laws that you know suppressed African-American communities and their rights uh, in the 19th and 20th century, and we know that those were wrong. Why can't we call this out in a more declarative way today uh, in terms of the Conservative Party and its view on this bill? Yeah, that, that is probably the biggest policy um, change from last time. I, like, I, I don't know if people remember, but with Peter McKay and Erno O'Toole, there was a lot of tiptoeing going on about Bill 21. And, you know, that was it was fresher then. It was, you know, less than a year old at that point, the legislation being proposed. And uh, I think that might have been a factor. But, um, you know, it does seem like something has changed inside the calculations of the candidates because, nobody's actually taking the other side of that. They're not taking the, the Peter McKay or no tool. Let's just like not talk about this kind of uh, point of view. Uh, everyone's coming out hard against it. Everyone except Polyev is saying that they would, um, you know, sign on to challenge it at the Supreme Court. And Jean Trey, one of his memorable lines was about how, you know, you can't be an observer in your own country. Uh, the federal government can't be an observer on this. Um, so um, that is a very small difference, though. Um, so I think it's quite interesting that they've made this calculation. I think it either tells us something about, you know, the nature of conservative politics, or maybe it tells us something about, you know, uh, Francois Legault's uh, sagging approval numbers, which were sky high a couple of years ago, but have slowly started to erode. So I don't know which it is, but there's something at work here. If I can speculate for a minute, because I agree with Stuart that this is the major takeaway that from the 2019 to the 2022 leadership race, we've seen this change occur within conservative politics, where now the default position to oppose this law. Stuart speculated on a couple of explanations. Let me put two on the table. The first is uh, the high profile case of a Quebec, a Muslim Quebec teacher who was suspended because she refused to remove her uh, religious clothing. Um, so I think that in a way brought expression 
uh, to the consequences of this bill in parts of English Canada. The second, though, is is more uh, political politically calculating. The Conservative Party for a long time has held out hope that Quebec represented um, this path to victory, that there would be a means to to pick up seats there uh, in the name of building a national coalition. The fact that that failed in 2011, 15, 19, uh, and 21, I think is a sign that uh, to some of these conservatives that there's not the case um, to, to, to sort of tiptoe around these issues, that the political trade-off uh, isn't worth it. And, and so I think in a lot of ways, that's as important um, as any of the others explanations for why we've seen this, I think, meaningful and significant change on the part of, uh, of the leadership candidates. Thanks, Sean. A important point to make. I'm glad you did it. Guys, let's take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, hey, guess who's on Twitter making some waves this week? Mark Carney emerges, uh, we think, in a really interesting political fashion. He's showing a little leg. We're going to talk about it right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, welcome back. Hub subscribers, you're listening to our regular Friday Roundup podcast. Um, on the line here with Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief, Sean Spear our editor at large. And uh, guys, let's spend the back half of the show um, talking about, you know, somebody who has for a while here suggested uh, an interest, a desire, a passion to lead Canada and to do so uh, as a prime minister, um, most notably as a future liberal prime minister. He, he had kind of gone dark, a little quiet, frankly, since releasing a book uh, last autumn, uh, but this week he was out with some some interesting uh, tweets. I'm talking about Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, Bank of England. Stuart, tell us what Mark was tweeting about and why maybe we should take these as more than just um, innocuous uh, high fives, um, you know, with little blue birds attached to them. Well, I was, I should have took some notes on the tweets because they are so innocuous and so free of any kind of content that it, the only thing that it can mean is there's a political future ahead because that's the only reason someone would write like that. Um, but I guess the gist of it is, is that he's joining the Canada 2020 board, which is this kind of liberal associated think tank. Um, I actually did a few podcasts for them when I worked for the National Post. It was fun. Um, but I think that is, it's kind of following a similar path as the current leader, Justin Trudeau, which is you kind of dip your toe in the water of liberal politics. And um, I guess this all kind of hinges on Trudeau at some point 
stepping down. Um, this is actually personal because at the hub, we did predictions over uh, the new years over the holiday period. And I said, Trudeau probably won't resign. Um, and my idea was the lure of the affirmation of other Canadians was too strong. Roger, you said that he would resign. We're still getting traffic on that piece because people find it so exciting when they go to Google and they find that. Um, so I, I guess this is kind of the grudge match is will Trudeau actually resign? And is this sort of a play for you know a year yeah. from now with a, an election a couple of years away? Stuart, yeah. you're, you're underselling this. Canada 2020 is a holding pen for aspiring liberal politicians and senior li liberal advisors. I mean, if you go back to 2013, and you look ahead, um, many members of the Trudeau cabinet were either publishing papers at, on, at a Canada 2020 and future senior staff were serving as senior fellows and in other capacities. I think this is the most overt signal on the part of Mark Carney um, that he is looking for a place to kind of uh, tend to his political aspirations while he awaits, as you say, um, possible changes at the top of the Liberal Party. The you know we've talked in previous episodes that the Liberal NDP agreement, which locks in this government for all intents and purposes of 2025, may provide Prime Minister Trudeau for, with an off ramp. And one can't help but think that uh, this week these seemingly innocuous tweaks set up a, a kind of Liberal grudge match uh, between Mark Carney and Christia Freeland uh, to lead the party. And you know I think it's. We've, we spend so much time talking about, uh, you know, the ebbs and flows of conservative politics, but I, I think we'll look back on this week as a kind of major uh, yeah. political moment. Well, two, uh, two observations here. One, I just got to read a couple of these tweets because they're so beautifully anodyne. I, I kind of feel like I'm reading a Globe and Mail editorial here where he says, for example, quote, or we can come together, square up to reality and find answers that build on our shared values. It's hard work, but it's worth it. And then he goes on to say, the end goal is clear, an agenda that will create a better future for all Canadians. I hope that you will join in and contribute. I mean, guys, it's just, I, I always, you know, I admire Mark Carney. I think he has had a remarkable career in public service. He, a lot of this, though, just feels kind of like the, the emergence of the Jean Charest of the Liberal Party of Canada, if you know what I mean. It's just, it's somebody who's writing and talking in a, in a language of another era. Maybe it's the, the, the parlance, the patois of Davos and, you know, the, the, the board conference tables of various central banks around the world that he's served on. But it, it just, it seems so empty to me. It just... You know, in his book too, we we looked at it at the hub. Others two values with value bracket s. I mean, it's just uh, again like the most boring headline in the world. You know, worthwhile Canadian initiative. Most boring book title in the world. Values. Uh, maybe some awards here for some of the most boring tweets, political tweets of 2022. I don't know, Stuart. Am I being too harsh? No, no, not at all. Um, I think this should be. The, the thing about this is if this becomes Christia Freeland versus Mark Harney, um, that is two people who have like the highest level of sucking up to journalist skill that I've ever seen. And Christia Freeland is a former colleague of a lot of these journalists. So I think there's some like natural sympathy there. Carney has, I think, been treated with kid gloves his whole career. I mean, if we look back to 2012, there was um, reports that he was flirting with the liberals back then. 
um, when he was currently governor of the bank. And, you know, we, we're talking about Polyev mildly criticizing, well, maybe not mildly, he's ferociously criticizing the bank. Um, and people are criticizing him for that. But this was a governor of the bank. And, and that is a serious issue. And there was barely a peep about it. Um, and even now, you know, some people believe that there are certain jobs like judges um, that should be monastic and stay out of politics just because it's, you know, it's not good for the health of society if if they're sort of dabbling in those things. I think, you know, governor of the Bank of Canada is kind of almost there if it's not there already. Um, but nobody wants to talk about that. And uh, it's always kind of frustrated me about Carney is it's, it's always just this kind of positive treatment. It reminds me of um, when Jim Prentice came to Alberta when I was there. Um, you know, very decent man, um, got along with everyone, but nobody wanted to point out the obvious political deficiencies that he had, which ultimately destroyed the party that he was the leader of. Um, and I kind of see similar vibes here with uh, Mark Carney. Yeah, let me just underscore two points. I, I, I think the point about um, perceptions about the independence of the Bank of Canada can't be underscored enough. I mean, uh, for all of the um, chin wagging about the things that Polyev has, has said in, in recent weeks and months, I think the, the biggest threat to the independence, perceived independence of the Bank of Canada is Mark Carney's um, uh, ongoing kind of political uh, uh, machinations with respect to the, the Liberal Party of, of Canada. That blew the door open. Anything that Polyev has said and done since then uh, is, is small beer in my mind. The second point I'd make, though, you mentioned uh, the Jim Prentice analogy. The one that I've had in my mind recently is, is Michael Ignatieff, uh, who we had on the Hub Dialogues podcast. I, I think very highly of Mr. Ignatieff. But you got the sense that he aspired to be the prime minister because that was so, that was something someone with his CV uh, and kind of worldliness ought to do. Um, it was the kind of culmination of a career, and one gets a, a kind of similar sense with with Carney. He's done all of these various things, and this just seems like the the, the natural culmination of his career. We we know what happened with Mark with uh, Michael Gnatchev. Let me give you another example of John Turner, uh, who of course came back after years of being out of elected politics and found that he was out of step with the the mood and the kind of energy and even the the kind of practice of politics um, as it had evolved while he was um, out in the private sector. So I, I actually think uh, there's a whole host of reasons why uh, notwithstanding Carney's uh, charm and his uh, you know high intelligence and his remarkable CV, he may not be the right person at the right time, um, given where the state of Canadian politics stands. Yeah, let me just, in in fairness, because we always try to find some balance here at the hub, you know, make the the case for Carney, which is, you know, we are in a very uncertain economic environment right now. Um, we're seeing um, once in a generation inflation record high levels of indebtedness across all parts of our society, glowing, growing uh, geopolitical economic competition of a sort that was really foreign even five years ago. So you could make an argument that, you know, Carney is a serious leader for serious times. And we are exiting a period, a phase of Canadian politics, maybe thankfully, where we had some pretty unserious leaders because they were kind of unserious times. They were times where we were awash in central bank liquidity, extra low interest rates. Anyone could borrow for anything, including governments. Any program was available to be created. 
no tough decisions had to be made. So I, I think kind of Carney's fortunes will ebb and flow largely with the economy. And I think if we do end up in a recession, if there is a housing correction, if there are some more fundamental and serious stresses, then I think he's got a shot, he's got a path. Absent of that though, I think there's gonna be a huge amount of pressure in the Liberal Party, but I think also demand outside the Liberal Party to elect at the ballot box, Canada's first female prime minister. Greg Lyle, a super smart guy uh, who does a fantastic polling with the Innovative Research Group, once told me a story years ago, he worked on the Kim Campbell campaign. He said they, they just, back in that day, they just started randomly calling um, female names in the Calgary you know, telephone book to raise money for, for Kim Campbell. And the response was overwhelming. I think women have waited a long time for this. And I think Krista Freeland you know, meets a lot of the basic competencies in terms of experience and now long and senior government service. She'll be a formidable candidate to beat for anyone provided that the economy holds together and she's not stuck with a defending a very, very uh, experimental, I'll put it politely, uh, financial and fiscal policy that the Trudeau government has followed since its election. But doesn't part of you, Rudyard, you know, that part that just likes to watch things kind of burn a bit, uh, <laughs> wouldn't you love to see a Polyev Kearney uh, general election campaign. Um, you know, it seems to me that would be something worth purchasing front row seats and a box of popcorn to watch. Well, even in it could even happen in the House of Commons sooner, right? Uh, official opposition, Carney runs, finds a seat. Um, I just wish, you know, Carney would kind of pull the bandaid off. Like this dance of a thousand veils has really gone on for too, too long. You guys are right to bring up the Bank of Canada conversation. Scott Bryson was part of that. That was a mini scandal. Now, you know, values his book. I mean, if you ever wanted to read a book that was a political manifesto that said everything, but also said nothing at a, just a masterful way, it is that book. Now his association with Canada 2020, like, come on, like, just do it as, as, uh, as Nike would say. I just add something too that is maybe worth considering is I don't know quite where Carney stands on sort of the policy spectrum. I assume he's more um, into fiscal matters than Justin Trudeau and maybe some of the other candidates. Um, but I do wonder if the Liberal Party has room for someone who is sort of like not quite a Paul Martin liberal, but mm -hmm. someone who's sort of a fiscally oriented uh, liberal. I think it's a different party than it was 20 years ago. I think that's worth considering. The other thing that I think is really interesting here. And I don't know what this speaks to, um, whether it's a comment on the people organizing the Carney stuff or whether it's a comment on the Liberal Party. But right now, there are three senior cabinet ministers, probably like the A-team for Justin Trudeau, are uh, Anita Anand, Christia Freeland, and Melanie Jolie. If you're looking at that and thinking, okay, what we really need here is like a 55-year-old white guy. Um, that's not really how the Liberals see themselves. and you know, Christia Freeland is sort of widely being reported as the, the, the heir apparent to Justin Trudeau. So I, I just, I'm kind of baffled by all this. Like Carney has a resume, but political skill is entirely something else, as Sean said. And these three people, I think primarily Christia Freeland, have been sort of tested on this already. Go ahead, Sean. Give me the last word. <laughs> well, I, I, what, I, what I will say is, um, you know, we, we, we Stuart said we made predictions at the end of 2021. Uh, I hope this episode stands as a prediction that listeners can come back and, and test us on. Um, but I, I, I think 
uh, well, uh, Carney's appointment to this advisory board at, at Canada 2020 is so far flown on the radar. I, I do think it's the next step coming back from Davos um, to uh, uh, get more um, directly uh, involved in preparing for uh, an eventual run. And um, yeah, we'll be covering it amongst other issues um, uh, at the hub over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, it'd be fascinating to see the ultimate you know, elitist candidate running in a moment of kind of semi-populist fervor and definitely anti-elite sentiment. But never say never, Mario Draghi, the former head of the ECB, is now running Italy as its, uh, as its prime minister. Christine Lagarde, the current head of the ECB, you know, rumored soon enough possibly to be uh, a future president of France. There may be something weird in the water there at those central banks, guys, you know. Um, above us mere mortals to speculate about, but clearly they're getting something right. Okay, guys, thanks for a fantastic conversation. We'll do this all again next Friday. And hey, the Ontario election's coming up. We'll go deep into that, connect it up, and of course, follow the federal leadership race for you. So thanks again for tuning in. We really appreciate it. Talk to you in seven days. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of The Hub Dialogues. For subscribers only, hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, a topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, Check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the Donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt, and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a Hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.